0: Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We have, I think, probably all encountered uh, the experience, the reality of seeing someone go from being uh, an upstanding, um, committed, focused Christian uh, to being disinterested, disconnected, dis. Um, no longer a part of the church. We've seen people take precipitous falls from places of, of good standing, places of, of strength, places of holiness and righteousness to places where um, they're almost not even recognizable from who they were before, from how we knew them, from in terms of their priorities, in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of the decisions they make. what leads to that? How does someone go from being committed and focused righteous to being totally disconnected from the God that they serve from his will for their life from the standards and principles that he has outlined? Well, as we return to for Samuel this morning, we come to a place in the narrative where the story shifts somewhat. We see a switch in the person of Saul. If you remember back in chapter 11, uh, we saw Saul carry out his role as king there in a very appropriate, very righteous, very uh, high-minded manner. He did exactly what you would expect of a godly king. He did exactly what you would desire and demand of someone who uh, is, in some ways, God's representative for his people. Saul was at that moment, in that time, in that place, the picture of godliness. And yet, we all know where this is headed. We all know where this is ultimately going to go. We, we've heard the story before. We've encountered and, and been with the journey of Saul many times before. We, we know that he's going to be an individual who's attacking David, who's, who's fighting David, who visits the witch of Endor and, and makes all sorts of really horrible decisions, so much so that he's not even recognizable as a person of God. How did he get there? How did you get from chapter 11 to, to uh, the kind of guy we see at the, the end of 1 Samuel? Well, that story unfolds for us in chapters 13, 14, and 15 of 1 Samuel. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the anatomy of a fall. What goes into a person falling from a, a place of, of righteousness to a place of Disconnection, And today, as we turn here to chapter 13, we see the root of it. We see how rebellion begins to, to, to hold, take hold of Saul and, and begins to be a part of his perspective and his outlook. We see how he um, makes some initial poor decisions, some initial poor decisions. Um, expressions of his faith, of his perception of God, of his perception of his people that will then take hold and that will begin to grow and and and, and ferment and become something much more drastic in the chapters that follow. So let's begin by looking here at verses 1 through 7 and, and get kind of a, a setting for, for how this all begins. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was at Giva, and Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn and threw out the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth And the men of Israel saw that they were, they were in trouble because the troops were in difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. This is a dire situation it, it's a it's a dark moment it's a it's a kingship at a, at a crossroads how are we going to proceed how is Israel going to proceed from this moment where Saul is still being followed but now we see what we see his people his soldiers his fighting men are grouped with are gripped with fear they they don't know exactly what to do. They don't know exactly how they're going to confront, how they're going to deal with this situation. A big part of their problem is that they don't have any weapons. If you move down to to verse 19 and following, it talks about how Israel has no blacksmith and that they were dependent upon the Philistines to to craft and to, to shape and to form their weapons. And so it says There in verse 22, so on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. This is a a, a circumstance where leadership is called for. And I would venture to to argue that a part of what the biblical writer is trying to get get us to see and understand, is that this is a moment where Saul, um, among any others, has to decide who he's going to rely on. Is he going to rely on God, or is he going to rely on himself? Is he going to rely on faith and holiness and righteousness, or is he going to rely on his own plans, his own manipulations, his own ways of dealing with things? And we get that answer in verses 8 through 15. It says, he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had said, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, what have you done? And Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought Yahweh's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, "You have been foolish. You have not kept the command Yahweh your God gave you. It was at his this time that Yahweh would have permanently established your reach, your reign over Israel, but now." Your reign will not endure. Yahweh has found a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what Yahweh commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. So we see Saul's approach. And on the surface, it might seem like he's trying to follow God's principles. It might seem like he's trying to, to, to keep God at the center of the situation, but, but as we break this down and as we look at Samuel's response especially, we see that that's in fact not the case. Samuel, as the prophet, gives us the lens by which we're supposed to read Saul's actions. So when we read about him giving the sacrifices and, and, and carrying these things out, while we, our first Inclination might be, oh look, he's doing what he's supposed to do. Samuel tells us that he's not, and so let's dig just a little bit deeper into Saul's response here and see what it is exactly that that, that he's done wrong. What is it exactly where he's gone off path, and and hopefully in looking at that, we can gain some understanding into into our own perspectives, our our own attitudes, our our own ways of doing things and to ask if what we're doing really aligns with what God would have us do or whether we're driven by our own selfish desires. Because ultimately, if we're not listening to God and we're not heeding the words of the Spirit as he speaks to us, then we are beginning the journey toward a, a collapse of our commitment, of our righteousness, of our focus. So what do we see here? I think the first thing we see in terms of how rebellion begins to take root is that we settle for halfway obedience. Samuel's instructions to Saul were, wait seven days and wait for me. It was a twofold instruction that Saul had been given by Samuel. He waited the seven days. The text couldn't be any more clear. The seven days came, the seven days went. He waited the allotted time. But what? He had not waited for Samuel. And we don't know why Samuel was delayed. We don't know what exactly was going on here. But regardless of what Samuel's purpose or, or reason for being late was Saul had been instructed to wait for him, and he didn't. He had settled for halfway obedience. Why? he? Because he didn't like the repercussions of the second half. He didn't like what it meant and the faith that was required to, to wait for Samuel. We read in in Saul's response here that, that he was afraid of what was going on. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But at the heart of that disclosure is the reality that he didn't want to be fully obedient because to be fully obedient required some discomfort, required something more of him than he was willing to give. When I read this story, for some reason my mind always goes to uh, the King Naaman, and his reaction, his interaction with Elijah. If you remember the story, Naaman was a, a, a foreign king, and he had been um, cursed with leprosy. And he goes to the prophet Elisha, and Elisha says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Jordan, and I want you to dip yourself seven times in the water. And I think about Naaman and, and all his doubts and all of his, his questions about whether or not this would work or not. and why, do, why is the water here, you know, special? Why can't I just do this at home and all those other things? I think about Naaman dipping himself in the water. And how, you know, he goes down once, comes back up. He's still got the leprosy. Twice. Three times four times, five times, six times. As far as we could tell from the narrative, nothing changed those six times. Not a thing altered. There wasn't a lessening of the leprosy. It wasn't like it was slowly removing and that sort of thing. It was all still there. And I think part of the reason my mind goes to that story is because I remember a preacher saying that had Naaman left at six... With partial obedience, he would have been what? He'd just been a wet leper. Okay. But that seventh time, he goes down, he comes up, and he's cleansed. Why seven times? Couldn't God have done it with one? Yes. Sometimes God calls us to an extension of, to, to a furthering of our faith. Primarily because he wants us to have faith in him and not necessarily the process. He wants us to see that, it's, that he's the focus of our faith, not the events. Not the, not the steps that we take. And that leads us to the second reason that, that Saul's steps here led to rebellion ultimately. And that was he minimized the structures that God had established. In verse 12, he says what? He says the motivation for his actions was that he had not sought the favor of Yahweh, of the Lord. What's he tell us there? He tells us that that in his heart, in his mind, in his purpose, it was the procedure that mattered, not the relationship with God. Uh, I needed to do the right steps. I needed to follow the right ritual. I needed to to practice the right custom. That's what was necessary for me to win the battle. That's what was necessary for me to move forward. And whenever we as a people, whenever we as, as, as individuals or as a corporate body get embedded in the process, in the procedure, and that's where our faith, that's where our hope, that's where our love is, then we are in a status of rebellion. Why? Because our faith is in something other than God, and that at its heart is what? It's idolatry. And you see that in people who who get wrapped up in a, in a certain way of, quote, doing church. Or a certain way of of practicing rituals, or something that that are more superstition than they are faith. And when that idolatry begins to take hold, we we lose our connection to the God that we're serving. All of our mindsets, all of our practices, all of our programs need to be embedded. In a recognition of the authority of God's word, who God is, what God has said and what he's calling us to, not in our customs or in our rituals. And then we need to keep this in mind in terms of, of the things that God has given us. We hear a lot today uh, of our, our disposition toward the government. Perhaps somebody is president that we don't admire, respect, or think should be. Perhaps it's something on a more local level. And we forget that Romans 13 calls us to do what? It calls us to, uh, to pay our taxes. It calls us to pray for those who are in power. It calls us to obey the laws, even if we don't necessarily like them or think they're fair. calls us to respect of the institution not necessarily because the institution itself is respectable, but because God has established it. I see children more and more disrespecting their parents, not listening. Although Ephesians 6 tells us what? Children, obey your parents goes on to say what? Fathers, don't incite your children to anger. The relationship between parent and child is set in terms of what Scripture calls us to. We see this in the issue of of the pastoral role. And I hesitate to bring this up because it's incredibly self-serving. to to bring out a point like this sometimes. But I bring it out to to say this. Number one, I believe in congregational polity. Y'all have been with me long enough to know that, that I believe it's important for the congregation to be a part of things that happen. I'll be honest, it saddens me that we have as few people at our business meeting as we do. Because I think it's important that all the congregation be involved in the business of the church, where we're going, what we're doing, the decisions we make, the votes we take, all of those things. But there is a a responsibility, there is a role that I play as pastor here in terms of the leadership, the direction, and, and the conclusions we draw. Hebrews 13, when it talks about respecting and listening to your elders, the word elder there is not old people. The word elder there is the equivalent of Pastor. when we minimize the statuses the, the the roles the 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 relationships that God has established we minimize God's word God's purpose a recent study was done it just came out last month on on the values of americans and it said that Presently, only 39% of people in America consider faith and religion a very important part of their life. 39%. 25 years ago, that was 70%, the same poll. We began to minimize the structures that God has put in place. We began to minimize the church and who we are, and what God has called us to be. People have drawn the conclusion, the faulty conclusion, that somehow I can worship God and ignore his church, his people. The church is the bride of Christ. It's one of the two institutions God has established here on the earth to express his presence and his relationship to us, the other being the family. When we minimize those things, when we minimize those structures, then we minimize God. And when you minimize God, you're one step closer to rebellion. It's easy to rebel against someone you don't respect, someone you don't fear. And that's what Saul has done with his minimizing of the right of sacrifice. It's just a step I take. It's just a procedure I follow. It's just a, a, a ritual I carry out so that I can go do something else that I want to do. A third mistake we make that leads to rebellion is mistaking our definition of urgent for God's. Saul says, what? The people were scattering. It was an urgent situation. I was in a panic. I was worried. I didn't know what to do. What is he telling us here? He's saying saying my confidence was in the army I had built, not the God I was serving. And because my confidence was in this, this other thing, when it began to deteriorate, when it began to fall apart, so did my faith. didn't know what to do. This was the same God that had led Gideon with 300 men to to wipe out the Midianites. This is the same God who had taken small, inconsequential Israel and led them into this land where Deuteronomy says there there were seven nations larger than them, seven individual nations larger than Israel. And God took care of all those nations. This is the same God that had just shortly before in Saul's own life saw him win a victory over a great number of people. But that wasn't the focus Saul had. That wasn't the commitment he was interested in he was felt a sense of urgency because the surrounding circumstances the place he had had his faith was falling apart and there's a truth embedded in this reaction and that is simply this that you know best what your ethics are when pressure is applied. what do you really believe what do you really put your confidence in? What are you really building your life around that comes out when the pressure begins to be applied, when the struggle begins to set in, when the things that are around us are, are not what we are used to or what we're accustomed to? What decisions do we make in those moments reveal what our, what our ethics are, what our relationship to God really is? Do we still trust him? And if we can't trust him in those moments, then it won't be long before we're not trusting him in the easy moments either. And we've taken one more step toward rebellion. We also see that we take a step toward rebellion when we believe ourselves incapable because we've forgotten how capable God is. When you look back at chapter 11, one of the things you see over and over again is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. The Spirit of God did this. The Spirit of God did that. Here in chapter 13, there's not one mention of the Spirit of God. Not one. Why is that? Because Saul had closed himself off to the Spirit's leadership with his mindset, with his perspective. And when you close yourself off to the power source, to the authority, to to the one who brings you victory, then what? Insecurity sets in. Saul seems incredibly insecure here and and full of self-doubt. He's not the king we saw in chapter 11 who who said, let's do this, let's go. We got this, and they went out. And I'm convinced that a a big part of our world and a big part of our struggle today with with all this this, uh, lack of self-confidence and and lack of self-worth and all that, grows out of the very fact that we haven't put our confidence in the one who grants us worth, who grants us confidence, who grants us a direction and a purpose and a place in life. We've built our, our, our understanding of who we are on, on all these other things and not on our relationship to God and who God says we are. And because of that, we are insecure. We're fearful. We lack direction. And then I think the final step toward rebellion and how it takes root is, is a failure or refusal to take responsibility for our mistakes. When Saul is confronted with his sin, with his halfway obedience. When Samuel says, what have you done? What is Saul's response? He gives two responses. Number one, he blames Samuel. You didn't come. You didn't come. I waited and you didn't show up. This is your fault, Samuel. You're the one who's behind this. And number two, A false sense of piety. I forced myself to sin, to do the sacrifice, he says. I forced myself to do the sacrifice. I didn't want to do it. It's it's not my my natural inclination to, to do the sacrifice like this, but I just had to. Why? Because you didn't show up. And this is, a, this is a standard, this is a model that we see repeated by Saul over and over again. We'll see it again next week. His refusal to take personal responsibility. And that's the ultimate lo, uh, location of his failure. That's the ultimate location of his rebellion. Because our refusal to take responsibility is embedded in the idea, in the concept that we don't have to take responsibility, that we're not beholden to God, that God's not the authority, that God's not the standard, that God's not the one who evaluates us. We are. And if we're the one who evaluates us, and if we're the one who judge ourselves, and we're the ones who determine our own direction, then we don't have to take responsibility. We can just rationalize our way through every decision that we make. And that's one more step toward rebellion. It just builds. The cycle continues from there. It grows. And the next thing comes around. And we're maybe not even halfway. Maybe we're, we're only a quarter way obedient next time. And we minimize even more the things, the structures that God's put in place. And it becomes more about our perspective of, of what's urgent and what's important than what God would have us, and we go even more secure, insecure, having more self-doubt. You see, the cycle is never just a continuous cycle in one position. With each new decision, with each new journey through the cycle, we get further and further away. We decline in our connection to God. But embedded in this whole discussion here, Samuel's response to Saul is also a solution. A recognition of something important that that should help us to, to understand our place before God. And it's when he talks about how, how God has replaced him with someone else. And he says in verse 14, Yahweh has found a man after his own heart. Now at this point in the narrative we don't know who that is. We'll come to discover it's David. But what is it about David that made him a man after God's own heart? When we look in 2nd Samuel we see David an incredibly flawed individual. We read the story of David and Bathsheba. We read the story of Ammon and Tamar and David's failure there. We read the story of Absalom and his rebellion and David's failure there. We read the story of the senses that he takes, that is against God's wishes. We read numerous narratives of David's failures, and yet he is identified, he is recognized as a man of after God's own heart. Why? How? Well, I think two ways. Number one, the way we often hear, he had a like mindedness with God. He had a he had an ability to see when he had done wrong and to fess up to it. We read in our responsive reading this morning a portion of it was from Psalm fifty one. What is Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote in response to his actions with Bathsheba. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And that word create there is a word, goes back to Genesis 1, it's a word only God can do. It's a totally new work. God, I recognize that the heart I need, that the mind I need, that the perspective I need can only come from you. So please do that. I can't do it on my own. That's what is a man after God's own heart. A person after God's own heart is a person who recognizes God's position, God's authority, God's place. there's a second intention here and it comes out in in the parallelism that Samuel expressed here and that is simply that the phrase means that David was the focus of God's will. David was God's chosen one. David was was the one that, that God... Was going to raise up. And, and embedded in that is what? the David's worth, that David's position, that David's authority, that David's role, that, uh, that all that David was was found first and foremost in who God is. And as individuals today, if we're going to avoid rebellion, if we're going to avoid that, that, that slip, that slide off of where we ought to be, it has to begin with a recognition that we are who we are because that's who God has made us. We owe everything we are, everything we are, to God. Not just in the fact that he has created us, he made us, he shaped us into who we are, but, but especially in the fact that though we were sinners in rebellion, he sent Christ to die for us. He loved us. He has redeemed us. Any righteousness I have, any holiness I express, any capacity for love that I communicate comes from him. And until we recognize, until we, we live, and until we dwell in the reality of his role in our life is central to unequivocal, most significant role in our life, then we're just one breath away from our belly. We're just one decision away from the journey away from where we should be. So I ask you today, As you look at this list, do you see any of that taking place in your decision-making process? Do you see any of those things in the attitudes or the actions that you undertake? If so, then the answer resides in just one place taking personal responsibility and repenting of those sins. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us. And as we point out that verse, I, I always point out, simply because I, I think sometimes Christian business, John is writing to Christians there, not non-believers. He's not talking about justification there. He's talking about sanctification. That as you grow in your faith, it requires continually returning to the Lord to confess your sins. So that what? So that you grow with the Lord. So that you understand the Lord. So that you remember the Lord's role in your life. Yes, your sins are all covered. The ones you've done, the ones you're going to do are all covered by the blood of Jesus. Not about getting them re-cleansed or reforgiven. It's about the growth that we have to go through as Christians, constantly being reminded of God's position in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today to time of response, God, I pray. Firstly, that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, I I pray that you would speak to their hearts, that you'd help them to see that rebellion is, is who we are before we experience Christ, and that the only way to move beyond that is through submission to you and your will, your call, your offer of salvation. God, I also pray for myself and my fellow believers here that we recognize the tension we live in. But though we are redeemed, we are still capable of rebellion. I pray that you help us to To see you for who you truly are. To place you first and foremost in our hearts and minds. To be committed to your direction, your purpose for our life. To not minimize the institutions you've given us. To not walk and live in a status of doubting you or placing other things before you but to maintain our, our our walk and our testimony by relying on you for everything. God, I pray that you use this time to help us to respond appropriately to where we are in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.